Welcome back to another episode of the Legendary Life Podcast. I'm your host, Ted Rice. This is the show that's all about taking your health, your body, and your life to the next level. Today, I have an amazing guest for you. His name is Dr. Mike Isretel. He is a competitive bodybuilder, a competitive powerlifter. He has former state, national, world records in powerlifting. He is a competitive grappler. He just started Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu not too long ago. He's already competing in it, and he competes both in bodybuilding and in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu now. We talk a little bit about that, but I'll tell you the reason that I asked Dr. Mike to come on the show today is because Charles Staley said Uh, And Charles is a friend of mine and also a world-renowned strength coach. He's also been on the show, of course. He told me that he sat down with Dr. Mike Isretel to get coaching from him on how to write better programs, to get him up to speed on all the science of optimizing weightlifting, resistance training, strength training, whatever you want to call it. And he's the guy that people like me learn from. He's the guy that people like Charles learn from. And I wanted him on today because one of the things I try to do with this podcast is bridge the gap for you. You get so much fitness information from marketers, from from personal trainers who don't know what the hell they're talking about. And I like to bring on not just people who are like me, who are probably not not as good (laughs) in many cases, but have a good following or they're making some money or whatever. This is a guy who understands the deep science behind getting results with exercise. He's going to help you clear up some of your misconceptions about strength training, about how to optimize the level of stress that you're putting on your body through exercise so that you can become the biggest and strongest, leanest person that you aspire to be. And we talk about training. We talk about why the bro split is not as good as high frequency training. He gives examples of high frequency training, things that you can listen to and go try out afterward. He also talks about how many sets per muscle group you should do per week. So if you're interested in taking your training to the next level, that's going to be great information for you. We talk about nutrition and how to optimize nutrition for the best results. I ask him about my fasted training because I, I work out and I first thing in the morning and I don't eat breakfast most of the time. I ask him, hey, is that messing me up? What do you recommend instead? You'll get to hear his answer in case you're someone who does their strength training in the morning like I do. You'll also hear about carbohydrates and whether you need them, why they may or may not be important for you. And we also talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet. Lastly, we go into a discussion about how long it really takes to transform your body. How should we think about that process? And he gives one of the best explanations, metaphors, and stories that I've ever heard about how to be successful with your mindset when it comes to when, when it comes to approaching your training and when it comes to getting results, what you should expect. So all that and more in this episode with Dr. Mike Isretel. 
Dr. Mike Isretel. Welcome to the Legendary Light Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super pumped for this episode with you because I've been following your work for a while. Charles Staley is the guy who turned me on to what you're doing. And I feel like you're one of the people out there who's really trying to sift through the misinformation and conflicting information. And so it's an honor to have you. I know we're going to bust some fitness myths today. Well, yeah, uh, hopefully. Charles is a great guy. Thanks so much to him for the referral. I don't know. Let's hurt some feelings. Let's let's find out what's fact and what's not. Get ready to have your feelings hurt. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, let's start by hearing a little bit about who you are and what you do for the people who aren't yet familiar with your work. I'm a professor of public health and exercise and sports science at Temple University in Philadelphia. And I teach courses there relating to personal training, nutrition for public health, exercise, nutrition, behavior, and a variety of other such classes. And I also am a head science consultant for a firm called Renaissance Periodization, which I helped to co-found. And what we do is we write a bunch of books, write a bunch of articles, and we provide very high-level coaching and a variety of digital template services so that our customers, if they want to get in shape, whether it's through personal coaching with an expert or whether it's through the consumption of our templates, which kind of guide you step-by-step into getting you better fitness or better nutrition or what have you. And also, if they want to just read our literature that we put out, we put out a lot of basic books that talk about main concepts of how to get fit, how to be healthy, how to put on muscle, how to lose fat, and whichever avenue they want to go. They can even read a variety of the uh, articles we put out. Our, Our mission is kind of to, you know, to get rid of fitness BS. And there's so much of it that the most we can do is try to present a logical and rational view and then hope folks that are really our demographic, our target at Renaissance is people who are really tired of going back and forth between programs that seem to promise big results and don't work. And we don't promise anything crazy. We promise that you'll see good, consistent results with the application of the scientific principles, whether or not we personally coach you to it or that you do it yourself. And that's what we're all about is just kind of no-nonsense science-driven results. And there's more and more of folks like us popping around, but I'll tell you what, it's not enough. Most of the fitness industry, you probably well know, is populated with a variety of uh, scams and gurus and all this other stuff that just makes a lot of promises and unfortunately doesn't deliver. So I've kind of dedicated my career in many respects to refuting all these myths and hopefully getting to the truth of things, mostly so people stop wasting their time. And I guess in my free time, and, and related to my career, I'm also a competitive bodybuilder and, and a Brazilian jiu-jitsu grappler. So it's not like I'm just some uh, old, crusty professor. I mean, I am crusty and I'm getting older. And I am a professor, so I guess all those are true. But uh, I'm also involved in the fitness side of things from a doing perspective, uh, not just a teaching perspective. Yeah, and that experience is so important sometimes, not just so that you can apply what you learn from your studies into real life and see what works and see how the art of applying that science plays out, but also for some street cred, man. I've watched your grappling videos. I've got a Brazilian brown belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu. Don't really train it anymore, unfortunately, due to some injuries and other things, but let's get into busting some fitness myths for sure. I can't wait to get into that, but I also love to hear 
what got you into this? What was your journey like to get you to this point where you're busting fitness myths and you're also a bodybuilder, so you're living this lifestyle? Like like you said, many uh, professors kind of, they've got the intellectual side handled, but don't have the experiential side handled. What was that like for you, that, that journey to where you are now? I started off in high school wrestling and I started lifting weights in between wrestling seasons to try to get stronger for wrestling and to try and improve my body composition. And eventually I fell in love so much with lifting weights that in uh, college I didn't wrestle, but I instead began to powerlift competitively. And as I began to powerlift competitively, I would get so much more and more obsessed with getting stronger that uh, it turned all of my sort of sub-hobbies into finding out ways to get stronger and eventually turned my school into a way to find out how to get stronger. And I was always, uh, you know, for a very long time, uh, as long as I can remember, I was always uh, deeply respectful of science. I was a nerd way before I was a meathead. And I kind of understood that the surest path to good results and the truth has to be through science. I mean, science is our lens for reality that is the most clear, even though it is the most laborious to execute. And I began to read a lot of literature and uh, a lot of books on how to get stronger and then how to get bigger. And I changed my major at the University of Michigan to kinesiology, graduated there. And then from there, I just had to learn more. So I got a master's degree at Appalachian State uh, in exercise science with a concentration of strength and conditioning. I got to work with athletes. I got to train them. I got to be in the laboratory, publish some studies. And then uh, on top of that... Uh, after that, I went to go to New York City to actually work with uh, the gentleman who I started Renaissance with, uh, Nick Shaw, and we worked as personal trainers, and we were always trying to track our clients' data. We were always trying to give them the best possible workouts, which means we would program workouts. We didn't just train them randomly, and we got a lot of retaliation from that, a lot of pushback from our bosses and our coworkers in the personal training industry who said, look, you just got to smash them up. You just got to train them hard. There's no science behind all this. You guys are overthinking it. One of my biggest pet peeves ever is when someone says that you're overthinking something because one time out of 10, they're correct. And nine times out of 10, they're brutally, woefully ignorant and are making one of the stupidest statements ever. And I'm sure people told Bill Gates he was overthinking things when he wanted to design a new operating system. But, um, you know, so I, I did not like the anti-intellectual attitude and personal training community. I also didn't like my own ignorance that I have had. So I went back to school and I got my PhD at East Tennessee State University and that was in sport physiology. The only thing we learned there is how to take good athletes and make them better in a variety of ways through nutritional intervention, training intervention, recovery intervention, you name it. Mm -hmm. And it was the most valuable degree I've ever received. It was the single best piece of schooling I've ever had. And I got a chance to work with the Olympic training site there, programming nutritional plans for weightlifters so they could make their weight classes. And I got a ton of experience doing all kinds of other stuff. I was a sports scientist. I helped coach volleyball in that regard. I was a strength and conditioning coach. And I uh, had accumulated quite a wealth of knowledge. I began to teach courses. I got a job as a professor after I got my PhD. And since then, I've been professing, so to speak. <laughs> and, you know, the entire time, probably in, in, in graduate school, I fell in love with the idea of bodybuilding. I did my first show the same week that I defended my dissertation. And uh, since then, I've been getting leaner and more jacked with the goal of being as jacked and lean as possible before I'm too old to get more jacked and lean. So a lot of my thoughts now are with how to maximize outcomes in hypertrophy training and training volumes. 
during my prep for bodybuilding, I was doing a lot of incline walking for cardio and just a lot of walking in general. And I actually got some blisters on my feet from doing that. And they weren't so much a, a problem I didn't want to overcome. But I kind of, you know, one of my best friends, Melissa Davis, who actually works with us uh, at Renaissance now, she was grappling at the time. And I, you know, I looked at her grappling and I remembered my wrestling years and I was like, my God, is that form of cardio beat the living crap out of incline walking on a treadmill. And so when I went to get my, my first professorship job at Central Missouri, I would just happened to be that uh, one of the people working there already as a professor was Dr. Jen Case, who is now a uh, one-time Pan Am champion and two-time Master of World champ in jiu-jitsu. Nice. And she was already involved in the sport, and I contacted her before I got there, and I was like, hey, can I come roll with you? And she's like, yeah, sure, because, you know, like everyone says stuff like that. Like, oh, I want to try it out. And then so, you know, in August when I came to move, I hit her up and I was like, hey, I'm here. When are we rolling? And she's like, oh, you were serious. And I was like, yes. So we started rolling. And the first week I went to jiu-jitsu, you know, the first Saturday that we were there, she rolled with me. And she, I think, submitted me about nine times in six minutes. And I was great. And it was awesome being on a, I remember the smell coming back, the smell of the mats. It's a disgusting, filthy smell, but because I wrestled, it was a very nostalgic smell. And then ever since then, I've been um, doing some jiu-jitsu. I do three to five days of jiu-jitsu a week, and I have been for the last, oh man, three years. And I'm now a blue belt, and I know some things, which is cool. And I've competed a whole bunch in jiu-jitsu, and if I don't do jiu-jitsu for longer than about five days, I start to have dreams about violence so I'm officially addicted to jiu-jitsu as well as lifting. It was one of these things where I just did, it wasn't an offloaded addiction, one for the other, just summative. It was like another addiction I have now. So I'm actually intentionally tapering off jiu-jitsu right now because I'm peaking for a big photo shoot and I'm at my all-time leanest I've ever been. So I can't, I'm not going to be able to do jiu-jitsu just as a part of the normal periodization process for the next week and I know, I know Sunday, Saturday, this Saturday or Sunday, I'm going to start to have jujitsu dreams. So I'm ready for them and they're not going to be comfortable, but it's going to give me itching to get back in. So that's how I pretty much got involved in all this stuff. Yeah. And there's so many ways we could take this. I would love to talk about the recovery aspects of doing two different sports and, you know, how you manage that through periodization, but that would be selfish, <laughs> Mike. So what I think we should start with, and maybe we can have you back on the show to talk more in depth about training optimization and recovery and periodization, but let's start off with the basics, man. I know you're a bodybuilder and you, you just talked about how you actually compete in it as well. One of the things that show up for me the most when I'm talking to people is the dreaded bro split from, I don't know, the 1970s or 80s or whenever it started. Can you talk a little bit about what we do now or what you do now with high frequency training and what are your thoughts on the bro split and can you talk about what you do now to optimize your training for bodybuilding i can tell you how the bro split probably came about it came about as an intersection of two phenomena one is that in most sports and most endeavors the people that are listened to and copied the most tend to be the ones with the highest achievements, which makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make 100% sense because not everyone is at the same place in their career and different developmental timelines require different intersections of uh, training. So people tend to listen to gigantic bodybuilders for their advice. The Muscle Magazines interview them. 
Everyone wants to know what are the biggest guys doing to get big? Because, you know, who cares what the small guys are doing? Obviously, it may or may not work, but the biggest guys, I mean, they did something that worked. The biggest guys can do so much damage to their muscular systems with the one session that they need more time to recover than the smaller guys. So it's almost like asking a race car driver how long they need to repair their car after they have a racing accident. Well, in an accident at 230 miles an hour, the car comes apart completely. So the answer is it takes a six-month rebuild. But if you apply that to bumper cars where the speeds are very minimal and just every now and again you get some frame cracking, two days in the shop might be good enough. So if you're copying race car drivers with how to repair cars, then you're going to be taking so long to, in other words, kind of to recover that it's wholly inappropriate for the endeavor. Just the same way, if you're a gigantic 280-pound bodybuilder, when you train your chest, I mean, your chest may very well be, by a muscular cross-sectional area, larger than a lot of novices' legs. So if you say, well, I can only really train chest hard once a week, and then the other session has to be easy or no session at all, I mean, that kind of makes sense. So that's part one of why people do bro splits is because for the biggest guys, they do make some sense, not whole sense. The second part of why I think bro splits are popular is it all starts with because the best bodybuilders use them. The next question is why do the biggest bodybuilders use them? And the answer is in part because they're very, their fatigue management has to suffer because they can do that much damage. But secondly, there is no intuitive understanding or not much in no sports science, no coaching history in bodybuilding that makes room for workouts of different approaches, particularly of intentionally heavy and light workouts mm. or heavier and lighter workouts. The bodybuilding mantra, the bodybuilding orthodoxy, for lack of a better term, is when you go in and hit it, you smash it. Now, that's a good fundamental principle of overload. You've got to smash it to get results, but if every session is smashing it, then what tends to happen is as you present overload, your fatigue starts to escalate. And after three, four, five, six sessions in a row that are overloading, you have to take a deload or something to manage fatigue. Deloading is not a common practice either in bodybuilding. So what these guys notice is that if they actually trained hard every three or four days when their muscles were no longer sore, they could do that for several weeks, but then they'd get really beat up and they'd have to backtrack. So what I think they noticed was that if they let most of the fatigue dissipate over the course of a week, they could train hard every single week, more or less, and for weeks and weeks on end. The good news is that that does let you train hard all the time. The bad news is that as your fatigue dissipates towards the latter half of the week, so do some of the adaptations that you've gained in the first half of the week. So you're essentially taking so long to recover that not only are you recovering your system so they can perform again, but you're losing some of the gains you've made. It's too long of a time to take off. The reality of how you should structure training is twofold. One, your training should be more high frequency than it is just once a week, so at least two to three times a week. And not all of those, a muscle group when you say a muscle group. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, if you train once a week for your whole body, I'm not really sure what it is you're doing except for just wasting your time. <laughs> but uh, yeah. for sure, for sure. So per muscle group, you should train two or three times a week for many of the muscles at least. One of those workouts is going to be like hell on earth. 
Another one could be hell on earth for a related body part that doesn't involve that whole body part. So for example, big chest workout on Monday. On Wednesday, big shoulder workout with a lot of upper pec involvement, but mostly front delt involvement. It still hits the chest, but not a ton. And then later in the week, again, you can have a tricep workout, which does some chest movements, but very light and very easy. Hard on the triceps, but very light and easy on the chest. So that the chest ends up being trained three times, mega trained once, trained well another time, and trained very easily another time after that. What that does is it allows you to pulse out the training so that the muscle never goes so long without training that it starts to lose its size, but also it keeps its fitness and that even that allows even more fatigue to dissipate because it turns out fatigue in a muscle dissipates really well if you don't touch it, if you leave it alone. But if you train easy, it dissipates even faster. Now, that kind of stuff took sports scientists in, in East Germany and the Soviet Union decades of research to figure out, just, just to come to people. And bodybuilding, because it is often done individually, a lot of times there's not a lot of coaching involvement. And there's certainly no formal training in bodybuilding coaching. There's not really a governing body for bodybuilding coaches. That you tend to fall for these kind of short-term pathways that don't lead to the best long-term success. Like, for example... Uh, you know, it's kind of a it's this sort of like a nonlinear system view of things. If your goal in a simple minded aspect was to eat as much as possible through one day, as an example, I mean, if you tell a four year old your job today is to eat as much as you can in one day, the four year old is probably going to eat his first meal as much as he can. Right. Because obviously I need to eat a lot. Let's start now. But the reality is that if you never quite get completely full with each meal, over the course of a day, you could eat more. So that's the wise, nonlinear, non-apparent at first value approach. Just the same way with bodybuilding, people say, you need to get jacked. you got to train hard. And people go, yes. And the answer to that is, yes, you do have to train hard, but you also have to think about how am I going to get the most hard training and the most adaptations without losing gains over the course of weeks and months, not just my only mission is to train hard once a week because then you may be missing out on some adaptations. Now, you don't miss out on a ton. You can still get great gains training once a week, but you get better gains training twice a week and maybe slightly better gains in some situations for some muscles, especially ones that recover really fast, as often as three to four times a week. Yeah. And no, it makes so much sense. And, and based on the research and the history you gave of bodybuilding and how a lot of those guys, even though so, some of them were, were pretty cool on the frontiers of, of science and, and were later proven to be correct in some ways. But like what you're saying is we know better now and muscles, unless you're at the, the highest level of the sport and probably on a ton of drugs, if you're a bodybuilder, and crushing your muscles once per week, you're just going to lose some of the adaptation, some of the gains, in other words, if you're not hitting them again. You beautifully illustrated the issue with that bro split, and you talked about the higher frequency training and, and the rationale behind it. You gave an example of like what you might do with the chest on Monday, heavy chest day on Monday, shoulders on Wednesday, and some tricep movements on Friday. Are you talking about weekly undulating periodization there? Can you give maybe some rep ranges for someone listening right now to go experiment with? So this can work with any rep range, but I'll tell you this, the general, I'll talk about reps in just a second, but the general advice I have is 
If you're doing a bro split, don't worry about training a muscle three times a week. Just start with two. If you're used to training it once a week, here's what you can do. Take the total number of sets that you do per workout currently okay, per muscle. So let's say you do 20 sets for chest on chest day and zero sets on any other day because just there's just chest day, right? So you do 20 sets of chest per week, but it's all on one day. My recommendation is to split it like this. Pick one day of the week where you do 12 sets of chest. Pick another day of the week, middle of the week, three, two, two to four days later, and go eight sets of chest. So that one day is distinctly very overloading, and the next one is distinctly conserving of the gains that you got and maybe makes a few more gains but isn't super fatiguing. And you can do the same thing with quads. Let's say you do 20 sets of quads a week, right? Squats, leg presses, hack squats. 12 on one workout, a couple days later, eight on another workout. And you can flip the body parts around to make a really logical program so that you never really have any days which are super light days in the gym. You just alternate body parts. For example, on your big chest day, you can do a little bit of back work. Okay, so it's 12, you know, you're used to doing, let's say, 20 sets per workout. 12 sets for chest, 8 sets for back. On your 8 set of chest workout later in the week, you do 12 sets for back and 8 sets for chest. So it's still 20, but you've now counterbalanced the two where you're getting a really good stimulus, super crazy stimulus once a week, and a very good stimulus another time during the week. So yeah, so what that does is it allows you to have that stimulus and recovery structure as well as spreading out the sessions more throughout the week so that every time you come to the super crazy session, the last session you had for that muscle was easier and you're really well recovered. But because of the higher frequency, you don't lose your gains between the weeks. And that way you have kind of the best of both worlds. Got it. So when you were saying heavier and lighter, what you you weren't talking about the intensity or the rep range, you were talking about the number of sets. And so taking the 20 sets and spreading them into two workouts, like you mentioned, you're going to get much better results. And Mike, you used the number 20. Is that for a particular reason? Is there some research why you use that number instead of 18 or 25 or? Yes, but very good. So I'll talk about that in just a second. Really quickly, what I want to say is I meant volume when I said lighter, but I could have meant weight and I could have meant reps. Either way, the big lesson here is this. One workout in whatever way you choose per the week should be really hard, and the other one should be pretty hard. Does that make sense? Whether you arrive there by going different sets or different reps or different failure proximities. For example, one workout, you might do one or two reps away from failure, so everything's a grinder. All the working sets are grinders. In the other workout, you may do just as many sets, but you stop everything about three or four reps from failure. You're not quite pushing it as hard. Does that make sense? So that in some sense, it's easier to some extent. There's a needs to be a distinct workout that's very, very hard and a distinct workout that's pretty hard, but that's not as difficult to recover from. It's that up, down, up, down, up, down structure. Does that make sense? So, it, so, so for, the, for the viewers listening, it doesn't quite matter if you arrive there by volume. Now, if, if I was to give a much more technical talk, I could give more precise recommendations. It matters a little bit whether or not it's volume intensity, relative intensity. But the basic general lesson is don't always smash it. Smash it once during the week and get a good workout the other time. That way you get the benefits of high frequency and still an ability to recover. I like it. Summed it up. Don't always smash it. Yeah, exactly. Like, <laughs> good. Oh, good stuff. So yeah, yeah, that so makes for the a 20. lot. Yeah, 20. Let's do it. Okay. 
So, you know, in, in my experience as a coach working with lots and lots of athletes and the individuals that work for my company who employ very similar philosophies as, as do I, lots of lifters I've talked to, lots of interaction with tons of athletes and recent, at least hints in the literature at this, that for many individuals, the average intermediate trainer, if they sleep correctly and if they eat well, the average person this is a very rough estimate. It's just standard deviation on this is probably about five sets per week. But 20 sets per week is usually about the most people can really benefit from. The average individual, if you try to do 25 working sets per week for the same muscle group, and it doesn't much matter how you split it up. You could do 25 on Monday and nothing on any other days, or you could split it up over three days a week. 25 sets per week for most people, maybe for... 68%, 67% of all people is going to be a bit too much. It's just too much volume to recover from. And what For happens most, if a person does that? Will they go backwards? Will they eat up muscle? Will they plateau? What happens when a person overdoes it? It depends on how long they do it for, and it depends on how far over what's called their maximum recoverable volume they are. So if your normal maximum recoverable volume, the most you can recover from and still benefit is 20 sets per week, and you do 22 sets per week for two or three weeks, you just feel pretty beat up. But then when you take a deload and recover, you feel great. And you make the best gains you've ever had. If your MRV is 20 sets per week and you do 27 sets per week for three months straight, you're likely in the following order to have crappy workouts. Then you're going to lose muscle literally and gain fat at the same time. And then you're going to get hurt probably in that order. So the more over your maximum recoverable volume you are and for the longer time, the worse stuff happens. The way this works in the real world is this. Guys will chronically overreach, which means they go a bit too far above this value, but we're human. And then one of the first things to go when you're going over your maximum car volume is actually a variable we call in sports science desire to train. You actually don't feel like training much anymore when you're so chronically fatigued. And for most individuals, especially recreationally, they just won't push it much anymore. And they'll have a couple of days where they skip the gym. They'll have some days where they go a lot lighter or a lot less sets because just they don't feel like it. Like, oh, you know, you go in the gym and you just don't feel like having a hard workout. You're like, oh, whatever. You just do the bare minimum. Yeah. That is a form of people basically auto-regulating, and that brings their volume down and it brings them back to square one. What I wish people would do instead is never go too far to begin with, right? So if your maximum recovery volume is 20 sets or so, start – a mesocycle or a, a month of training, maybe at about 16 sets over the weeks, increase the number of sets you're doing as your body gets used to the exercises, go up to 20, maybe to 22 for just a little bit overboard, a little bit of that functional overreaching, a little bit of that overload, and then take a deload an intentionally easy week where maybe you do only 10 sets total that week. And then restart the process with new exercises. You want to flirt with your maximum recoverable volume. If you're consistently under it, You'll feel great all the time. You just won't make the best gains. You know what I mean? Like, you know, you're, you're, yeah, you'll be you're, jacked up from exercise, all the neurotransmitters and hormones, right? <laughs> For sure. And you'll feel fine. But, you know, the, the month the progress won't be there. You know, ask, you know, your aunt that doesn't lift, is she chronically fatigued? No, she feels fine every day because she's not experiencing any overload, right? So if you could potentially recover from 20 sets per week, but you only train 10 sets per week on the working weight exercises, 
But what do you get out of that? Well, you get gains for a while, but then your gains kind of start to plateau and, you know, you're leaving gains on the table. On the other hand, if you train 30 sets per week, but you really can only recover from 20, you're going to be chronically running into problems of poor sessions, of worse results than you could have had, sometimes even regressions if you pound it hard enough for long enough, or injury. And neither one of those is very good, and they follow usually sequentially, right? So... My big thing, my big philosophy is find out over the course of time, and this requires a lot of paying attention to your body. It requires for you to track your weights to see if you're slowly improving or if you're stagnating and figuring out what can I reasonably tolerate per week. And 20 is a good starting point as a goal. And if it's more than 20, you'll know pretty soon within a couple of months that you can't survive that much. Uh, There's muscles for which I can't survive that much. And if it's 25, you'll feel great at 20, and it's not going to be a big deal. And then after a while, you know about where your maximum recoverable volume is, and you can stick in that range for most of your normal training. And that's how you know you're doing enough or not too much. It's almost, a, you know, this works for every sport. For jujitsu, you know, if someone said to you, look, I can only do like one session of jujitsu a week, and then I'm too beat up. I mean, you're not really going to believe them. You don't believe themselves. Really, one session a week is all you can handle? Get out of here. Come on. But if someone says, look, 12 sessions a week, and I can't feel my fingers anymore, and like my foot <laughs> broke off one day, and I just left it at the gym, that's believable, right? So with a work schedule, with other training, maybe your maximum recoverable volume for jujitsu is three or five sessions a week or whatever. And not everyone's the same. So how do you know? Well, you start with something reasonable. Once you uh, get developed good fitness and you've been going to jiu-jitsu for a while, try three days a week. And if you feel good, try four days a week. You might feel a little bit beat up for a week or two just because it's new, and then you'll get used to it. But if you, for example, for me, five sessions a week, I've tried numerous times to go there with a full bodybuilding load, of course, and I just get, it's like a blender. I just come right out the other end, just completely chopped up, and I'm like, you know what? Five is just simply unsustainable for me, and that's kind of an intuitive way. There are more technical ways to find your max recoverable volume, but that one's really just intuitive and here's the thing ted i think that people ask you know a variety of technical questions and i always love these how do i know if i'm at my mrv sure these are great questions but for your audience and particularly folks who don't want to overcomplicate things listen real talk you know okay you know don't kid me you know when you could be doing more work at the gym you know you're leaving because you're bored not because you're tired you know that you could do chest again on thursday but you're just like "Ah, i'd rather watch tv that's not your mrv you know you could do more on the other hand if you're chronically exhausted chronically sore or just kind of numb and your numbers in the gym aren't looking so good you're actually workout to workout seem to be getting weaker for a couple of workouts in a row you know you're probably beating yourself up too much you know like a kind of leg workout where you leave maybe it's three leg workouts in a row and you're like if i have to do this one more time i'm just not showing up to the gym like that is when you're exceeding your mrv usually so just there's a lot of intuition there that you can use without getting technical to be honest with yourself is a big thing can you do more it takes some maturity it takes some honesty but after a while you can really get in touch with your body yeah and i'll tell you mike these days i'm 39 i've got a bunch of injuries from not having guys like you around to learn from when 10 years ago, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, and from some of the jujitsu in a car accident that I was in, uh, you know, it's so important. Well, I never walk out of the gym feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm crushed. I always stop when I feel like, you know what? I pushed it. I'm pumped. I feel good, but I also feel like I got some gas in the tank as well. Should I mm-hmm. be pushing harder? On occasion, 
I would say you should be pushing your all-out hardest in the week before you're intentionally deloading. But until then, you should save a bit of gas. How much gas you save should be based on how many weeks you anticipate to be training hard before a deload. On average, for weight training, deloading should occur for the average person. This is a very broad strokes. Every four to six weeks. We'll just put a number on it, and it's a pretty good average. So if you're the kind of person that can take six weeks of accumulated fatigue, which a lot of people can, you know that on week number six, you're going to deload. That's your plan. So what you do is the first week of training should be so hard that you should be stepping off of the pedal so much, right? You should be saving so much that you feel like I can do another five weeks of this and still be alive. In the next week, the training should get harder so that you think, okay, I can do four more weeks of this and I'm still going to be alive. The week after that, three. The week after that, two. In the last week of training before you deload, you should be pushing so hard that you are convinced you would not be able to repeat this effort next week. For example, over the course of this summer, one of my peak weeks before deload ended with me squatting 430 pounds with a slow three-second eccentric, uh, three seconds on the way down, full pause at the bottom, and you know, at a quick concentric, a one-second eccentric. I did that for four sets of eight with 430 pounds, which is an all-time big PR for me. And then I did congrats, four down. Thank you, thank you. I did three down sets with like 385 pounds. Okay, after that. If you were to ask me right after that workout, even a day later, even two days later, hey, Doc, could you do that workout again next week or more? Because remember, overload means we need to challenge ourselves week to week, not just the same workout. Can you go further next week? My answer would have been, are you crazy? Right. But if you ask me in the week before where I did 420 pounds for similar sets and reps, just a few less sets, I would have said, you know what? I got another week in me. Does that make sense? So the question sure. of... How hard are you pushing it? How hard, How much left do you have to go? The week before a deload week, you should be burning everything. Burn all the bridges. Nothing dangerous, but going close to failure, doing as much volume as you can handle, and more because you have an extra week to recover. But if it's week one of your program and the program's six weeks long, you had better not burn everything down because you need to hang on for another four or five weeks. And I'll tell you this, more than hang on, you need to present an overload for four or five weeks. Does that make sense? So you sure. need to go even further every time. So when people see me train, you know, I've had some trained with a bunch of people every now and again or like, my students will watch me train or I'll, I'll get spotters, right? You know, I train at the university gym and sometimes I'll, have, I'll ask for side spots or something on the squat, right? I don't do back spots on the squat because that's just a suicide attempt. So you'll have guys stand on the side and be like, you know, if, if I just don't come up, I'll say take it and just grab it and dump it back off of me and say, okay. And I'll do at the beginning, it'll be mesocycle uh, of squatting and it's the first microcycle. It's the first week of squatting. So I'll do my first set or my second set or whatever they're spotting and I'll rack the weight and, and someone inevitably goes, dude, you had a bunch more in you. And, and my answer is some polite version of, I know that's intentional, right. right? Because I have to come here next week and do even more. And then I have to come next week and do even more. If this was the peak week, I had better not have much left in me. You know, the people that saw me squat uh, 430 for sets of eight this summer, none of them were really like, yeah, you had like a bunch left. They were like, you had one or two in there somewhere, but that was really good. Especially your last set, man, that was about all that was happening, which is exactly what we want because the deload's coming right up. Yeah, you, you brought up so many great points. And uh, I take a deload every four weeks now, just it's easy to do for me. 
people in my coaching program do the same. They follow a workout that takes a deload that builds up in volume every one, two, and three, and then deloads on the fourth week. Awesome. Yeah. But you're also bringing up some great points. Like if you, that third week, if you do a a four week meso cycle, which is, you know, that for those of you listening, that's the talk, the the technical talk of, of Mm -hmm. one, like, part of your year-long workout or whatever. Like a month of training. A month of training. Thank you. So yeah, you can really just kind of push it and go by feel and leave everything on the table, but without injuring yourself, without having to lay down for hours afterward or, you know, (laughs) having people cart you off to the gym. I got a, a question though, and I'm going to take this interview in a little bit different direction than I initially anticipated because we've gotten so deep into this talk about training and high frequency and how to overload each week and, and deload on, on that fourth to sixth week. If you're a beginner lifter, intermediate lifter, like many of us are here, um, how do we eat optimally for this type of training? Because we can do a number of different dietary approaches. You even did a video on ketogenic diets for athletes. And wouldn't you say that if you're hitting the gym four, five, six times a week, you you really need to consider yourself like an athlete in the sense that you don't want to restrict carbohydrates too much. Can you talk a little bit about the ketogenic diet for people who are really hitting the gym hard and what you recommend as being optimal for performance and recovery? Yeah. So the ketogenic diet is when you lower your carbohydrates pretty low. And it's not a terrible diet because it feeds you plenty of protein and hypothetically could feed you enough calories. What I will say is this, in recovery, calories are king. If you undereat calories, it doesn't really matter where they come from that much you will not be able to recover very well, which is why on a hypocaloric cutting phase, recovery is always a scarce resource. So first, get your calories in, which means for the average person, consistency with your eating. If you one week lose two or three pounds because you just couldn't eat that week or you were busy, get ready to suck either (laughs) that week or the next week because recovery is calorie-based number one. It's the most important priority for nutrition for recovery. After the calories have been met, though, and you have a choice as to where to get them, the most important nutrient for recovery is actually not protein. Protein is the most important nutrient for making gains. But for recovering between workouts, which is critical for long-term gains, not just gains from the workout, right? If you want to grow muscle from this workout that you just had today for the next three days, eat all the protein in the world and you'll gain most of the muscle that you can. But if you want to make the gains and recover for the next workout so that the next workout can be good, carbohydrates are even more important than protein. Now, they don't need to compete with each other. You can have both. But carbohydrates are excellent for recovery. They are indispensable for performance acutely, which means what? The day after or the hours after you have hard training to get ready for your next hard training session, you should have a steady diet of plenty of carbohydrates. It also means that hopefully – Before you train, in the last meal before you train, you should have a good source of carbohydrates to literally fuel that training right then and there. So carbs have kind of two functions. One is to potentiate your training right then and there, an hour or two or three later, 
and to recover you over the longer term for the next session, which might be later that day, it might be the next day, it might be two days later. So for those both, carbohydrates are important and you should be eating them. How many carbohydrates? I think for the average person with an average weightlifting program or weight training program that just wants to get a little bit more jacked, get much more jacked or much stronger, one to two grams of carbohydrates per pound of body weight is probably pretty good. So if you weigh about 200 pounds, Anywhere between 200 grams of carbs per day and 400 grams of carbs per day is a real good start. And I'll tell you who should be having 200. If you do low repetition, relatively low volume work, lots of sets of three and five, if you train kind of more like three to four days a week and not like five to six, and if you work at a pretty sedentary job, an office job of some sort, you should bias your carbs closer to that 200 grams or that one gram per pound of body weight. If you have a more physical job, if you train more like five or six days a week, and if you're doing lots of sets of 10, sets of 12, sets of eight, drop sets, et cetera, then you should have your carbs closer to two grams per pound, closer to 400. Somewhere in between there, you're just going to have to eyeball it. And there's more precise recommendations. You can pick up a copy of our now oldie but goodie, the Renaissance diet, which gets into all kinds of technical considerations with carbs. But case in point, eat your carbs, eat them consistently. You will train better. You will recover better. And so long as you're getting protein too, you'll have great results. If you want to do a ketogenic diet, you can. Ketogenic diets preserve muscle pretty well. They don't allow you to train quite as hard as you do with carbs. And think of it this way. You spend so much of your time, free time, thinking about how to get more jacked. You spend so much time driving to the gym, buying supplements, working out. You might as well make an easy fix for yourself, have carbs, and maximize that process. If you want to go keto, that's okay, but you might be leaving some strength and muscle at the table. If it's better for you for consistency, some people, when they have carbs, give some headaches. Some people don't like carbs the way they make them feel. Some people think carbs make them even more carb crazy. If you like a lower carb lifestyle, that's totally cool. But I would say lower carb can be something like 50 to 100 grams of carbs a day, maybe 100 to 150. There's probably no good reason for weight trainers to go abysmally low, like less than 50 grams of carbs per day. If you think that's going to get you some kind of magical fat loss or health benefits, that is incorrect. Fat loss and health come mostly as a result of calories, not as a result of the macronutrients that you're consuming. Yeah, well said. And uh, for for those of you out there who are maybe a bit more crazy on the the holistic side of things for lack of a better term you know just just have have some more green smoothies to get your carbs in but, uh, there you <laughs> but do something if if you're training hard to make sure that you get those performance gains not just the muscle gains as well thanks for clarifying that for us mike you bet I would love to okay well here's a question for you and and I know there's a lot of people who do this as well I train in the morning, usually fasted, meaning I, I have a cup of coffee and that's about it. And I go do my thing. And I don't do that because I'm following like some guru's protocol for optimizing performance and weightlifting. I just have a hard time timing everything with getting my food in and then waiting till it digests and then hitting my workout. Am I leaving gains on the table how should I time my nutrients to optimize my workout? And what about those other people who are doing fasted workouts? How can we get the most out of our routines? Nutrient timing only counts for maybe about 10% of the differences in performance and body composition across the board. It's not a big deal. What's more important is that you get your macros in for the day, enough protein on the average day, enough carbs on the average day, and that you're doing this consistently. If that's happening, 
the protein and carbs you ate yesterday adapt and recover you from yesterday's workout. And if you wake up in the morning and go train fasted, especially if you find yourself to have plenty of energy, and a lot of people do without eating the first meal of the day, if you have some caffeine, that helps too. If you can have a hard workout, you're good to go. And one little cool insurance policy you can take is as soon as you get home or maybe even with a shake at the gym, start to refeed your muscles right after training is over and consistently eat throughout the rest of the day. What I wouldn't do is two things. One, I wouldn't fast more or less the whole day and then go try to train because you're just not going to have any energy and your workouts are not going to be that great. The second thing I wouldn't do is train and then for hours and hours and hours not eat anything because you're not giving your muscles the signaling and the resources with which to grow and recover the best. So if you want to train fasted in the morning, if you were a high-level athlete, I would try to talk you out of it, but that's just minutia. You can get tons of awesome gains waking up, having some coffee or something, and going right to the gym. No problem at all. Just make sure you start eating more or less right after you get home. Got it. So protein shake and then steady meals throughout the day right afterward. Okay. I have another question. So many people who listen to this show want to lose fat. And I know they're following the recommendations, work out more, eat less. Perhaps they're trying to eat all primal or paleo or whatever. I would love for you to help shift that mindset. I mean, I think you've done an awesome job, but for those people who are maybe crushing it hard and then not eating enough, what would you tell them that to kind of shift their mindset or perhaps do an experiment to see if they get better results by trying to fuel their workouts instead of trying to push their body so hard while restricting calories? The problem with pushing your body hard while restricting calories is that it gets you lean, but it doesn't do that for long because you burn out and quit. So the best kind of fat loss goals are the ones that are sustainable over the medium term, several months, the ones that you can take breaks from and come and attack later. So what I recommend is making a calorie deficit for yourself that gets you to lose between half a percent to a percent of your body weight per week. So if you weigh about 200 pounds, that means you should be losing about one to two pounds per week on a fat loss diet. I also recommend trying not to do that for longer than about three months at a time. So for example, you weigh 200 pounds, you want to be leaner. Take 12 weeks to get down to about 180 pounds. It's going to be tough towards the end. It's still plenty of food to fuel your workouts well, especially if you eat the right stuff and don't fill up on Twinkies and other really calorically dense items without a lot of good nutritional value. If you eat really good, wholesome foods, you can be not super hungry, not super starving, you can have great workouts. After you lose those 20 pounds, what I recommend is two to three months of good food, good training, and maintaining that 180 pounds that you now have. It's going to get easier and easier every week. You're going to have fewer and fewer cravings every week. At first, it's going to require some work. You're going to want to eat everything. Don't. So restrict yourself a little bit. But as the time goes on, first month, second month, third month, you're going to find that your body naturally wants to weigh 180, and the crazy hunger is gone. You feel great. If you want to get leaner still, have another goal. Go from 180 to 165 over the course of the next three months. By then, you'll surely be the leanest you've ever been or something like that. And then maintain 165 and you can reassess, perhaps going in the direction of putting on muscle after that or taking another break, maintaining, and then going down in body fat. But I would say slow and steady, good food, enough food to make sure it's slow and steady, not super rapid. And that sequential approach with maintenance phase breaks every now and again, that's the long-term way to really alter your composition, really lose fat. I love that. And I think that's something that is a misconception many people have 
because I, I have to deal with it all the time. In fact, some people, we, we just opened up another coaching group and I had a, several different guys tell me, oh, well, I want to get a six pack in three months. And yeah. I looked at them and of course they're going to make progress every month, every week. We follow this progressive workout, but how do you get people away from the seven pounds in seven days or the, you know, 90 day body transformation? How do you get people more oriented term towards a long-term perspective for their health? How, can we change some mindsets with that today? You know, I'm not sure. You can, <laughs> you can definitely start by educating people as to what the reality is physiologically. But we can do a little bit better. We can give some interesting analogies that maybe resonate more with people. Let's say that you work on a project at a company. A lot of people listening probably have corporate jobs. They work on long-term projects. Let's say the design of software. If we have, if we're video game designers, a video game can take a year to design. No problem, right? That video game design is going to be our analogy for getting the super ripped body you want. After you do the initial meeting with the client of what they want their video game to look like, if you're in the development business, do you look to your other developers and go, all right, fellas, brew that coffee up. Let's get this game done. That's insane. You start to develop a detailed plan. You go normal work day, you take weekends and holidays just like normal because you know you're in it for the long haul. If you try to make a very advanced game with advanced digital architecture over the course of three to four weeks with 15-hour days and barely any sleep and no weekends, you're just going to produce the worst thing ever and you're going to burn out before that and you'll probably quit your job. And people say, well, why don't you work in the video game industry anymore? And you'll say, you know, it was terrible. You know, nobody's, it's in these impossible goals and stupid promises and it's too much work. And I, I hated it. Well, of course you hated it because you did it all wrong. You tried to do something that is necessarily a long-term process way too fast. Now, are there times in the video game industry where there's crunch times and deadlines? Yes, if you do things right, you don't really have to worry about them. But sometimes things go behind schedule, and for the last two or three weeks, you might really have to crunch it. So in the last two or three weeks before you finish a diet, you finish a diet to get to that body you want, you might have to really suffer a little bit. But if you're suffering a ton at the beginning, you're just not taking the long view. And that really is, is everything. It's uh, Here's another analogy. Building a treehouse with your son. If you want to build a treehouse, it's going to take a couple of weeks, right? Because you only have maybe two or three hours a couple times a week to spend with your kid on the treehouse. So if, if, if your son looks at you and goes, let's build this thing today, dad, you've got to explain to your son, listen, I'd love to do that, but... As we continue to build a treehouse into the wee hours of the morning, first of all, you are going to fall asleep, kid, because your bedtime's 8 p.m. and you pass out at 9. And second of all, dad's going to continue to be awake and do an incrementally worse job. Nighttime's going to happen. I'm going to have to wear a headlamp. I'm going to put the nails in the wrong place. The whole thing is going to collapse and we'll be back to stage one. People know these things. Everyone listening to this show is an adult. People know that long-term goals that are difficult and have a variety of stumbling blocks and feedback mechanisms and points of resistance and points where you need to check your progress, they know that such goals can't be tackled quickly. But they have this hopefulness that dieting and body composition works in some kind of different way than every other systems analysis problem out there, right? Every complex system, when you're altering it, requires time and diligent effort and patience and points after a large amount of alteration where you let the system settle into 
whatever state it is, you test it out for a while, and then you reanalyze what you have to do. You gather steam, and you begin another procedure of work. It works like that in every single industry, every single facet. But that's work. People think, okay, but that's work. I understand that, but can't fitness be easier? Can't it just be a one-shot kill? Well, listen, if you got a company for me that can make me a video game in a day and a half, I'd love to talk to them, but I have never seen a company like that. And if you got a guy that says, I can lose a bunch of fat in seven days, I ain't never seen that either, right? So I think a lot of times what I like to do is I like to appeal to people's adult nature, right? Um, do you really think it's going to happen that fast? Do you really think it's that easy? And if they say yes, you go, were you born yesterday? What's wrong with you? And they go, well, I don't know. Because people will see this commercial for this like fat loss cream on TV, right? You put it on and the fat just goes away. And they'll say, hey, do you think that works? I, my, my next question to them is, why do you think it's on late night television? If it really worked, doctors would be prescribing it. If it really worked, professional bodybuilders would be using it. But you look on the forums, pro bodybuilders don't talk about it. Doctors don't prescribe it. Things start to be fishy. And if it looks too good to be true, it probably is, applies in fitness at least as well as it applies everywhere else. So to folks that are interested in the seven-day fat loss miracle, look, if you still believe in miracles outside of religious reasons, you're still four years old at some level. Cut that out. Grow up. Things that are worthwhile take time. Do an intelligent approach. Keep your endurance and go for the long haul. I have one more quick analogy using the kid and adult thing. If you have a hike planned that's 50 miles over the course of Yellowstone Park to see a bunch of sites and landmarks, you know, your eight-year-old might be like, Dad, let's make it all the way through Yellowstone today. Well, you know that's a stupid idea, but the kid has no idea how long that is, right? So you got to say, look, son, we're going to enjoy the scenery. We're going to not burn ourselves out because, look— a 50-mile hike over three or four days over Yellowstone can be just an amazing life experience of beauty and wonder and physical challenge. But a 50-mile hike over the course of straight of a day through Yellowstone is like the, the only reason you do that is because like robot psycho terrorists from the moon <laughs> are, march, are marching on the West Coast and you got to run to some kind of evacuation base at the end of Yellowstone. It's it a, a terrible life-altering event you never want to remember, right? <laughs> and, and that's the same thing with dieting. Right. If you want to have a good hike to accomplish a good hike and enjoy it and at the end of that process, look back and say, hey, that was great. I could do it again and also not have really crazy sore feet and wish you never hiked again. You got to do it right and take your time and take breaks. If you want a terrible time, which you probably won't even succeed with because most people can't even walk 50 miles on a single stretch. Just do the seven-day fat loss miracle and be on your way. But when people talk about their fitness goals that they've achieved, you're going to be left out of that conversation because you won't have any achievements to speak about. Mike, this was my favorite part of this entire conversation. It's the part that I think you know, is the most important, that mindset shift. Thanks so much for coming on the show today, sharing your, your information, your knowledge, your wisdom, most importantly, your time. If you want to hit up Mike, if you want to see what he's got going on, make sure you go to renaissanceperiodization.com. I will have that in the show notes because it's a, a little bit difficult to spell, but Mike, yep. is there anywhere else that you'd like the listeners to go to learn more about I what you do? will be, yeah, you bet. On a, on a serious note, I'm at, at RP Dr. Mike on Instagram. I'm Mike Isretel on Facebook. It's a public account. Show up. 
troll my con- troll my uh, I, I put a bunch of information on there all the time troll me troll my pictures it'll be great we'll have a laugh and our at rp strength is renaissance periodization's facebook or i'm sorry there our instagram we've got a ton of great stuff on there that's where you can find me and, and my philosophies on a not so serious note I'm going to be at Yellowstone walking across the whole park in one day because you know what? I want the seven-day fat loss miracle. Ted, you just talked me into it. <laughs> Hallelujah. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that and along with, uh, you know, all right, I was going to make a political joke, but you know what I want. <laughs> I'll just stay away you from it. You know what? I, I think everyone in this election is so disillusioned. I don't think anyone gets offended anymore. I mean, if anyone, yeah, I'll say it. If anyone's still really super happy about Hillary or Trump, I don't, I don't, I don't think anyone's left over that's really pumped about that. So <laughs> yeah, I think I if, if, if you were ever going to make political jokes, it would, you know, it now would be the least sensitive time because there are no really good candidates. But that's that's all I'll say, and I'll leave it at that. Absolutely. Well, Mike, thanks again so much. And I feel like we just scratched the surface, so we got to get you back on. In, in a you couple let me months. know. You let me know, and we'll be back. Awesome, Mike. Talk soon, and thanks so Take much. Take care. Bye. Incredible conversation. What a great guy. I can't wait to have Dr. Mike Isretel back on the show again. In fact, we never got to get into some of the other fitness myths that I wanted to talk about, some of the more controversial ones, actually. But in this section, we're going to talk about takeaways. And the first takeaway is bro split training, otherwise known as chest on Mondays, back on Tuesdays, shoulders and forearms on Wednesdays and legs on Thursdays or whatever, hitting your body parts once per week is really for those guys who are at a high level of bodybuilding and probably taking a ton of drugs. In other words, it's not for you. So what to try instead, hit those muscle groups more than once a week. Try 20 sets, as Mike said, try breaking them up into one day where you're doing maybe 12 sets, like he said, and then one day when you're doing eight sets. And he said, by the way, 20 sets per muscle group, not per an exercise, okay, per muscle group. So if you're doing incline, bench, flat, dumbbell presses, whatever else you're doing, chest dips, etc., make sure that you Look at the total volume and make sure it comes to around 20 sets per those muscle groups. And of course, we didn't have that much time to dive deep. So if you do want me to have Dr. Mike back on the show, let me know. I would love to hear what you thought of this episode. Takeaway number two, if you want to build muscle and improve your performance, carbs are necessary. And if you're getting away with a ketogenic diet or a low-carb diet, etc., and you're feeling good, you're happy with your performance, great. Keep doing what's working for you. But if you are lagging in your performance because, hey, you need to burn fat and gain muscle and work hard all at the same time and push your body hard, do this high-frequency training thing all at the same time, you're going to need carbohydrates to perform your best. So if you're interested in building muscle then protein is important. If you're interested in both building muscle and improving your performance, carbohydrates are going to be necessary to make that happen for you. The third thing is what we talked about at the very end, 
Be an adult. We can sum it up like that. Don't think you're going to build a million dollar business from scratch in a year or, or you know, overnight. Don't think you're going to build a video game. Don't think you're going to build anything of value fast. It doesn't work. People are just trying to take your money. It's better to commit to the process and focus on progress. I'm going to say that again. Commit to the process, focus on progress. Ask yourself, am I showing up consistently? If you can say yes, awesome. The second thing is, am I making progress? Am I getting stronger? Am I able to lift more weight, do more sets or reps, do a harder version of an exercise, etc. If the answer is yes, you're on the right path. Keep going. And if you want to buy the same workouts that we use with our CO Strength Coaching Group that is a high-frequency training program, go to legendarylifepodcast.com slash workout legendarylifepodcast.com slash workout, and you can purchase the first three-month program of CEO Strength. It's a 12-month program, but you can buy the first three months right now and give it a try at legendarylifepodcast.com slash workout. That's all I've got. Let me know how you like this episode because I want to get him back on the show. I think we just scratched the surface, but I care about what you think. So make sure you reach out to me, Facebook, email, on the website, whatever your preferred method of reaching out to me is. Let me know. I'd love to hear from you. That's all I've got. Have an excellent week and we'll speak soon.